Moses walked into darkness. That's where God was. In the darkness. In the shadow. In the fire. 600,000 men and then, what, women and children behind him saying, make God stop talking. You go. You go face God in the fire and the darkness. Cowards. Like us. Zoom way forward. The last day of the great feast. There were three major feasts in Old Testament Israel. All of them required by law for the covenant to remain. Remember, this old covenant is not just a promise of salvation on the last day. It's a promise that your country is going to rock. You're going to have good crops. You're going to have fertile families. You're going to have enemies that cannot stand against you. Just follow these rules. And some of those rules, not all of them, some of them are three major festivals. Just think Christmas and Easter and, I don't know, Fourth of July. They're spread out. Three major festivals every year. you got to come and party just like I tell you to. And it was. There were feasts. There were food. There was alcohol. Come do it just this way, and that's part of you staying holy as I make you holy. Now, we can get into the history of how poorly this all works out for them. That's what we've been doing with this year in the Old Testament. But by the time that Jesus does what he does in John 7 and 8, they have reestablished the second temple under Zerubbabel, had several hundred years of intertestamental times take place, and they're currently living with most of the law being kept officially. The feasts are back. The sacrifices are back. There's one thing missing The Ark of the Covenant is not back. Hard to throw blood on it when it's not there. But even so, they keep the feast, Passover. You know that one, right? And then you have the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks or of Sevens, and then you have the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And if I'm not mistaken, that's this one. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, a time by which they remember their wandering in the wilderness. And yet... Along with all the things they had to do for this feast, there were a few traditions that they'd brought along on their own. One of them involved every single day of the eight-day feast. Eight days. Can you imagine if we did Christmas for reals for eight days? And we all went to one city somewhere in the U.S. to do it as Christians? I mean, it's unbelievable what this would be like. In any case, every one of those days... They would get a a bucket, a big basin of water from the well at Bethesda, which is down on the bottom levels of the city, down off the mountain. They would get this bucket of water, and you might remember, if I'm again not mistaken, this is the pool where it would bubble sometimes, and so invalids would lay there thinking the angels are going to heal them and all this stuff. But they would take water from that place, and they would walk it in a big procession, like everyone's cheering parade kind of stuff, right? I mean, they don't have tricycles or anything, but, but it's like that. And they're walking in parade up the middle of the whole city to the temple where that water is used to wash the altar. And they clean the area of the sanctuary there. They purify it for the, the feast of, again, tabernacles or booths. Seven days they do that, once a day, and on the final day, the eighth day, the great day, they do it seven times. Also then, all the way along, this is their season of light too. And so they would, I've not seen it, so I can only imagine it like Christmas. They would take lamps, which for us would be candles, but with oil, and they would all light them all over the city. 
So at night, you have these lamps just everywhere as decoration, light and light and more light in the midst of darkness. And there's a great big fire that's also happening up toward the Temple Mount, where you would go up and you would see this great light representing God in our midst. So that's what's going on for seven days. And on the eighth day, the great day, Jesus goes to the heart of the entire thing, I imagine, while they're bringing the seventh bucket of water up, and he says, hey, I'm the water. Oh, I'm the light, too. He's not just throwing that out there. He is directly assaulting their most cherished traditions. Not as if they're wrong, but as if they only have one fulfillment, and that's in him. That he is the light in the midst of our darkness. He is the water that brings life. Last week you heard about the water flowing from the rock as Moses struck it so that the people might drink and live. And I've told you before, I'll tell you again, that is Christ, that rock, as Paul says. And so also when Christ's side is struck and outflows water and blood by which we live, well, this shouldn't surprise us, right? It's what's been prophesied to happen all along. And when he says, then I'm the living water, we should believe it first. I do want to take a half-tangent moment to correct the most common misunderstanding in this text, by the way. It's the editors even did it, because they put a period at the end of verse 37, and they really shouldn't. So look at 737 in your gospel, and then 38. On the last day, the great day, we did this. Jesus stood up, he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Comma is what should be there. Because as it reads now, without the comma, he says, Come to me and drink, period. Whoever believes in me, that's the one who comes to me and drink, As the scripture says, out of his heart will flow living water. Well, the way that reads, you think then, I'm going to go to Jesus, I'm going to drink from Jesus, and from me is going to come living water. The problem is, you're not God, you're not Jesus, and even as a Christian, I'm sorry, living water doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. He's not quoting the text to say you're going to have living water coming from you, but coming to you. So when you put the comma there, it helps. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever would believe in me, as it is said of me, out of his heart will flow living water. And in fact, when they pierce his heart with that spear, that's exactly what happens. It's from the heart sack that the water and the blood go. Yes? So don't think it's about you. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Jesus who says, I'm the light of the world in the midst of your darkness. An epiphany, the season of light and the darkness of winter. And today, Jesus transfigured on a mountainside, glowing like the sun in ways mankind cannot imagine, but which reflects very much what happened to Moses. And we're going to touch on this Moses-Jesus connection a few times here. Moses, though, not in today's text, but in later texts we'll see, whenever he goes to speak face-to-face with God, when he comes back out or down, His head glows. The glory of God's light is so profoundly real and like substantial, okay, that when it hits him, it like sinks in. And when he walks away, it's like still there, right? It's pretty impressive, really. And the people of Israel disliked it so much that just like they said to Moses at the end of the Ten Commandments, make him stop talking, they said to Moses when his face shined, can you cover that up, please? It's a little bit of, you know, 
PDA, I suppose. He does. He covers it up. And St. Paul picks up on this in our text from 2 Corinthians. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. But first, the glowing of Moses' face is a reflection of the glory of God on a mountain. On a mountain with Peter, James, and John, Jesus turns around and he, he glows, but not with a reflection. There's no reflection. He glows with the glory of God. He is the glory of God. One greater than Moses has come. And that, of all things, should be definitely held tight as we walk through the rest of what I'm going to say today. But what I want to do now is get a little crazy, I think. Um, Because I don't have a choice. I am just like you. I am a Christian. I'm just a guy. I mean, I know you see me up here. I I dress professionally. You know, I I try to act professionally. So you think, oh, Pastor Fisk, he's great, blah, blah, blah. I'm just a guy. And as a guy, I just have faith. That's it. I just have human faith. Weak faith. It comes and goes. It flops around sometimes. I got big doubts. I got big answers to those doubts in the Word of God. But all the same, I'm always on my own journey, faithfully here. Yeah? And I'm, I'm reaching a point in my own personal journey, my own personal faith, at which, well, I, I've always been frustrated, but I'm frustrated enough now to start talking about it. And I'm kind of throwing caution to the wind a little bit here, right? Like, I could play it safe. I could say, I got a good job. We got a good amount of people here. We can pay the bills. It'll keep getting paid. Sit back, take it easy, cash your check, and enjoy your Sunday work only, yeah? Now, I wouldn't do that anyway. But I cannot in any way find contentment right now in America. I am so frustrated with our country. I am so infuriated with Christianity in our country. I am so saddened by the guilt and the fear and the lack of knowledge and the resulting idolatry and paganism that is being risen up in our midst. And I frankly just can't take it anymore. I'm not going to pretend like the church is fine I'm not going to pretend like Christianity's fine. I'm not going to pretend like America's going to go on no matter what has it has from the beginning. Whether it's coronavirus or some other thing, I don't care. The world is evil. And we can sit here and pretend it's not and be happy, or we can have our hearts and minds renewed by the word of the living God, and we can go to war. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm starting with you. So forgive me if I seem a little off my rocker. I am. I believe this world's going to burn. And I believe you're not going to. And I want everyone else who's not here this morning to know that. And in that then, the imagery we get from this Mount Sinai event becomes something that we should cling to as we walk about our lives here in, in little old Rockford. The image of light and darkness, the image of shadow and fear, the image of a God who should destroy but doesn't. And we should connect this also to the ideas of illumination, not just of light shining, but of your mind. That the world walks with darkened minds. 
They see things, they can do the math about the things, but they cannot understand their real causes or their real results when it comes to spiritual realities. Now this does bring us to the epistle, which is just such a powerful text. I cannot do it justice today. 2 Corinthians 3, again, Paul is defending his ministry. He's trying to explain how he's a true apostle, and the people who are teaching at Corinth, calling themselves super apostles, are in fact liars. So he's, he's having to defend himself as their pastor and as an apostle. And he says, he, Jesus, has made us, meaning Paul, preaching to them, ministers, that means like a servant, not a pastor per se, but a servant of a new covenant. That's a better contract than the one with the Feast of Weeks and the sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. A better contract, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, we can, we can get lost in the letter-spirit talk here, but the way to read that is, wow, there's two ways. You can take law and gospel, if you know that terminology, you can shove it in, it works just fine. But that terminology can be a bit jargonistic, kind of vacuous. So think maybe instead of, the letter is what we would do because we have to, because we think it's going to work. And the Spirit is what God does, because God does what God does. So in this, this new covenant is not of the letter. That is, you better do this so that it works. And if you miss a dot or don't cross that T, it's all over. That's not the covenant we have. We have the covenant of the Spirit, oh, preached, breathed, spoken. He is risen, just as he said. That is a different covenant. It works differently, functions differently, and by the way, is just way better in general. That's what he's going to be talking about here to some extent, but it's not quite why we're digging in. But, good to know, the letter that is doing what you can do, it kills. The spirit that is Jesus doing it to you, he gives life. And if the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, carved in letters on stone, again, Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So again, Moses goes up, gets the Tenth Commandment, his face glows. Paul says, well, if the, if the thing that was there to kill you was that much light, rest of sentence, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If when God came to give us just the Ten Commandments, as if that's not, not much, right? But it is. The Ten Commandments are just an explanation of how the world works. That's it. You cannot believe them or what, whatever you want. They just define how human nature is and how, it, how it's meant to interact. That's all it is. Well, if God having to tell us that involved a big fiery explosion on a shaking mountain that was so terrible that no one wanted to go near it, don't you think that him saving us from the devil's wrath will be more glorious, will be more powerful? And of course, if you want to go back with these typologies, these pictures where the old is fulfilled in the new, don't forget, the first glory comes on a mountain with a lot of shaking and darkness, and you don't really get to see God. And then, under darkness at the noonday time with the sun gone and the earth shaking so that the temple curtains are ripped in two a man points at this man and says behold God there he is huh? so the real glory comes with many of the same signs but that's really not Paul's point either here Paul's point is to emphasize that the glory of do this is weaker than the glory of it is finished 
And that better glory of God doing what we cannot do is what we are now all servants of. He's trying to convince the Corinthians not to be stolen from that, not to have it taken from them by false teachers. And he emphasizes then how to lose this distinction, to lose the he is risen, to lose the he is risen is to lose faith entirely. It is to not be able to see God, know God, or understand God. I'm going to get into that here a little bit more. He says, verse 12, since we have such hope, hope, we are bold. If I am being bold today, it would be because of my hope. We are bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What? Being brought to an end? I thought they were just starting the Sinai covenant. Yes. But he's bringing the world to an end. The Sinai covenant is the picture of what must eventually happen to the universe, else it will be destroyed. And it will, when it's not in Jesus, that which is not in Jesus, will be destroyed. That's the end he's talking about. Yeah? That had all this glory. Moses covered his face because they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand to think about the world being that bad. The reason of that, though, verse 14, is the one you really want to zoom in on. This is because their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. They did not want to know the real God. It's as easy as the story. God says, hey, this is true. They say, Moses, make God shut up. It's that simple. And that that's us. And what we don't believe, you and me, St. Paul Lutheran Church, what we don't believe is that that's them. Everybody out there driving around. There's a couple of Christians that go to a couple of churches and many of them are starving in their faith because they're not getting any scripture. But by and large, you got darkened minds out there that don't have a clue. And if they heard a word from God, they'd say, make him shut up. That's the world we live in. Now he's talking specifically about the Jews, but it does apply to everybody. But the next part's more about his own brothers and sisters, the Jews. He says, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. Now, C.F.W. Walther, one of the leading men in the early Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, he took that idea and he said it this way. He said, without understanding the distinction between the law of God and the gospel of God, the Bible is a closed book. The Bible's a closed book. You can open it, you can study it, you can read it, you can know it backward and forward. You can quote chapter and verse. If you don't understand the difference between do this and it is finished, you will not get it is finished out of the book. You'll get a bunch of do this, and on Judgment Day you'll stand there and say, I did it. And you'll say, no, you didn't. I don't know you. That's what that means. The only way the veil is removed is through God removing the veil and entering and joining you. Why are we here, St. Paul Lutheran Church? Because the veil has been removed. That's why. You're not clouded in darkness. Certainly, you walk amongst it. Certainly, it tempts you. Certainly, it's always going to be a threat to you. But you are not those who do not know he is risen, just as he said. The only thing you are is, well, perhaps, perhaps people who have let the hope in that dwindle and weaken. The ember glowing a little less than it should, and so the fear creeps in. And as the fear creeps in, the desire to speak lessens. 
And you kind of sit in the corner and you hope and you pray and you really want, but the world keeps doing what the world does. People keep drifting, churches keep closing, Lutherans keep becoming Methodists in practice. And we kind of wonder what's going on. Yeah? And the answer, well, the answer is to repent. Jesus is sufficient, that's the answer. And with Jesus being sufficient, we can go back to this book and we can say, oh, look, our minds are darkened. Wow, let's believe that. Let's believe our minds are darkened. Let's believe that when I give you an A or B choice, and I don't tell you what the right answer is from the scriptures, and you're not sure, if you had to guess, based on a hunch, you'd pick evil rather than good. Let's believe that. And let's believe that about everybody else, too, so we're not so surprised when evil men do what evil men do. The whole Epstein thing, did you hear any of that? Were you surprised at how gross that is? Because you shouldn't have been. That's not new. That's been going on in history forever. We think we're better for some reason. Why? Capitalism? I don't know. We're not. Their minds are dark. Their minds are closed. And you, <laughs> it only takes a spark. Stupid song. You have the light of the world in you now. In the words of Jesus. And that light overcomes darkness. Now what I want it's for you to intentionally fan that into flame in your own head, your own heart. So I can't do that for you. I can shout at you. But I cannot tell you to commit yourself to just a little bit more grace, a little bit more mercy, a little bit more church, a little bit more confession of the faith. I can't make you do any of that. I'm just not going to pretend I'm doing it well anymore. I'm going to start talking about it a little bit more. The veil lies over their hearts. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed from one image to another. Degree of glory to degree of glory. When you come to that text in your devotions, if you ever do again, just remember, the glory change that's taking place is not flesh like physical to heaven. It's nothing like that. It's law to gospel. It's believing I need to prove something to God to knowing that God is the one who proves all things to me. And standing with my face unveiled and Jesus' face unveiled in that reality. And let's take one more piece here while we're at it. That little thing that we cover, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine in the, in the, the chalices, the thing we cover it with is called a veil. Right? It's a veil. It covers it up so you can't see it. That represents what would have been the curtain in the Old Testament temple. So the Old Testament temple, when you come in, it wouldn't quite look like this. But you would have a giant curtain across the entire thing. And nobody would go into that curtain space where the Ark of the Covenant was, except for one guy once a year, the high priest. He would go in behind the veil, as it were. Paul will also talk about how all of this is just a picture of the true eternal heaven. So that when Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father, he is entering behind the veil. He talks that way there as well. But you know as well as I that when Jesus dies on the cross, that temple veil, ripped, torn, broken, open. What's there? Nothing. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't there. There's nothing there. The Ark is on the cross dying. But dies, rises, having instituted a new covenant by which the veil now no longer is there to keep you out. Quite the opposite. What are we about to do? The veil will be removed and the face of God in Jesus, flesh and blood, 
will come out to meet you, to bind with you and join you, light of the world, water that lives forever, food and bread from heaven, immortality given. All of this, hoo-hoo, without touching on enough of Sinai. Egypt enslaves them. They get away with plagues and Moses and God's promises. They cross the Red Sea and it destroys Pharaoh and his army, baptism. They get to the other side. They're starving. He gives them bread from heaven, Lord's Supper. Not actual things, but images of. Then Christ is pierced for our transgressions as the rock is split and the water flows. And now God comes to them holy and righteous and awesome. And he speaks about what life is supposed to be. What do they see it as? Darkness. Darkness and fear. That's who we are. These things were written for our instruction. Not so we would say, look how wrong they are. But so we would assume, look how wrong we tend to be. And then we would go and we would search these scriptures for this this law. Like, what is the world supposed to be like? How do we align our lives so that we reflect what God designed? And then more importantly than that, who is Jesus? What did he do? What's he coming again to do? And how then shall we live knowing that? So the only thing I haven't done I should do for you this morning is try to prove my point that the Ten Commandments are the greatest wisdom in the world so far as the world is concerned, if you understand the Ten Commandments, you can make a righteous, that is a good moral decision in every instance of everything in your life forever. My guess is, for the most part, they are just something you remember having to memorize at some point, and it was kind of frustrating to do so. There's so much more than that. They're wisdom, true wisdom. Think about it this way. They're in darkness out there. They're in darkness. What do they need? Light. What does that mean? Their minds are closed. They're living lives of confusion and mistake. Why? Because no one has told them what goodness is. We have it. We have goodness. We have a way to have marriages that don't have 70% of them ending in divorce as they are right now. We have a way to believe that children are a blessing from the Lord, not something in the way of a career, and have good reason for this. We have a way to respect private property and see it as something you use for the good of all those who don't have it. We have ways to do this without destroying civilization in the meantime. But we have to believe it. We have to understand it. And at some point, your believing and understanding will speak That's maybe the last thing then to take from this. When you speak to a world in darkness, don't expect them to treat you any differently than they treated Moses. Don't expect them to understand. Don't expect them to say, thank you so much for correcting my ignorance. It's not going to happen. Expect them to hate you because they hated Jesus first. But for far too long, in my own personal life, I've believed what that said, and yet I've tried to not be hated. I've tried to not be hated, and I'm still going to try to not be hated, but I'm not going to hide what I believe to be true. I really do think we stand on the precipice of this civilization. I'm not necessarily talking, you know, riots in the streets. I have no idea. Although, if that disease were such that 20% of the world's population was out of action for a month, it would change a lot of things about how food gets where it's supposed to go. 
And when the food's not getting there, people show you what they're like real fast. I don't know. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I do think this world is that bad. And I want us to be confident. I don't want us to wallow in the muck as if this is all that there is. I want us to stand with conviction. So, well, shake my hand and pat me on the head. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. But not until you feast on the bread from heaven, the water of life right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.